Lighten Up the Defense presents Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Disco Barn. My name is Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven, owner and proprietor. Now, what on earth brings a fellow like yourself out here at this hour in the middle of a storm? This establishment's been closed for business for quite some time now, so if you're looking for an evening's entertainment, I'm afraid you'd be better off looking elsewhere. The last person who came here seeking libations was gravely disappointed. Oh, he ended up getting drunk that night, but not in the manner he was expecting. Heh. Oh, oh, oh. Excellent. Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven, I presume. Well, you presume correctly, I suppose. Mind you, you did get a pretty big hint a few seconds ago when I introduced myself and told you my name. That sort of thing generally removes most of the need for presumption, I'd expect. Well played, Mr. Shadow Maven. I see that your reputation for wit has been well earned. I only hope the same can be said of your reputation for hospitality. May I enter your disco barn? There is much I would discuss with you. And will I find the night air invigorating? I fear that my raiment is ill-suited for such weather. No, I suppose it isn't. Mind you, I'm not entirely sure what weather a long velvet cape and tuxedo is suited for, but probably not rain. Guess you may as well come inside, then. Enter freely and of your own whatnot. Thank you, Mr. Shadow Maven. Oh, for hell's sake, call me Ezekiel. And let's hold off on the thank yous just yet. Your gratitude might be a bit premature. You still haven't told me who you are or what brings you here. Once you do, well, then I'll start to determine whether I'll be having a conversation or a bed lunch. A most judicious attitude, Mr. Ezekiel. And in answer to your question, the name that the darkness whispers when it calls me in the dead of night is... David Stevenson. Ah, ah, ah. Although few have the opportunity to pronounce it before the very syllables turn to liquid fear in their throats and begin to drown them in their own terror. I don't anticipate that being a problem, but perhaps to be on the safe side, I'd better just call you Dave. That might be prudent. All right, then. Dave. Judging from your accent, you aren't from around these parts. What is it that brings you out to Piscataqua County at this time of night? Your ears do not deceive you, Ezekiel. I am indeed from away, as your charmingly foxy xenophobic local idiom would have it. I hail from Brattleboro. Brattleboro, Vermont? The very same. And I have journeyed from far off Brattleboro to seek your counsel. When I finally spotted your barn after my long and harrowing travel, my dark heart filled with hope that you might aid me in my quest. For I am certain that with your assistance, I might finally know some semblance of the contentment that has long eluded me. 
Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Dave. Before you start dancing a jig on account of you found my barn, how's about you tell me what your problem is? Even if I am of a mind to help you, and I'm not saying I am, that doesn't necessarily mean I'll be able to. Optimism may be well and good, but in my experience, be positive makes a far better refreshment than it does a philosophy. Heh, that's a little vampire humor. I'm a vampire. Ha 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 ha! A most welcome jest, Ezekiel, and one that you will find cuts to the very heart of my predicament. For like yourself, I too am Das Vampir. I'm sorry, I don't think I caught that. I said that like yourself, Ezekiel, I too am Das Vampir. Das Vampir. Precisely. Uh-huh. And what exactly is that? I- I'm afraid I don't speak Vermont. Is it a model of Volkswagen or something? I'm not really in the market for a new car right now. Oh, no, no, Ezekiel. Vampire, as in vampire. I'm not a German automobile. I am a vampire. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I probably should have gotten that from context clues. One might think. Regardless, I fail to see how the fact that you're a vampire necessitated you coming all the way out here from Brattleboro just to talk to me. I was getting to that. You see, the reason I have been journeying these many nights... Dave, Brattleboro is only a few hours away from here. Well, I made the wrong turn in Skowegan. And then Don was approaching, so I had to bury myself beneath the earth with a pouch of soil from my native Brattleboro. Only during my slumber, I think a badger clawed its way through the pouch. And when I awoke, I couldn't be sure which soil was which, so I had to go home and get another soil pouch and then start my quest anew. It was a whole thing. Oh, sure. Badger-related mishaps are the bane of vampire travel schedules. Next time, mix a little bit of citronella oil in with your soil pouch. They can't stand the stuff. You see, this is exactly the sort of information I was looking for. Ezekiel, you may have trouble believing this, but I have not been a vampire for very long. No. It's true! And most of the information I have unearthed about our dark brotherhood has come from classical film and literature. You don't say. Ah, but I do. You see, after I was turned, my dark maker vanished without a trace. At first I thought he had abandoned me, but then I found out what really happened. He had been turning himself into a mist and hiding in bongs to prank local college students. But he must have picked up more of a contact high than he realized, because he lost track of time and wandered into the quad to play some hacky sack. He had just executed an impressive reverse Magellan when the sun rose and he burst into flames. I saw the video on YouTube a few days later. It went viral. Oh, I heard about that. Your maker was Zippy Von Dreadmist? My condolences. Thank you, Ezekiel. For weeks I was disconsolate. Not only had I lost my tie to the world of the supernatural, but I had no means of furthering my vampiric education. I researched what myths and rumors the humans had cobbled together about our kind, and did my best to emulate them. But so many of the scraps of information compiled appeared to contradict one another. I was unsure what to believe. Then, I stumbled across a chat room. 
There was a usual assortment of pretenders, spreading self-aggrandizing misinformation. But some of the participants appeared to be actual members of rural New England's supernatural community. Of those that appeared legitimate, many had fond memories of your disco barn. And they all agreed that you were as wise as you were nimble on the dance floor. Well, I don't know that anyone's that wise. You do yourself the disservice of false modesty, Ezekiel. From the words of those tech-savvy kobolds and hobgoblins, I knew that if anyone was to help me navigate the treacherous waters of my damned existence, it was Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven. Then and there, I decided that I must find you and your legendary discotheque of the damned. I spent months puzzling together the vague clues about the barn's location, until I was certain enough to brave sunlight and badger alike, and embark on my journey to find my new mentor. Well, that's very flattering, Dave, but we have a website, you know. I did not realize that. Oh, sure. We may be closed, but we still rent the place out for private functions from time to time. In fact, next weekend, the Fresno Nightcrawler has us booked for his niece's quinceanera. Now, back to your point. As flattered as I am by your request, mentorship is an awfully big responsibility, and one I'm not sure I'm interested in right now. But, seeing as you went through all the trouble to make it out here, I could perhaps be persuaded to offer you a bit of advice. I will not pretend that I am not disappointed with your decision, but any wisdom that you might impart would be greatly appreciated. I'm not entirely unsympathetic to your predicament, Dave. In fact, your attire reminds me of a different fellow who once visited this barn. I think you might benefit from hearing his story. If you feel it might be illuminating in some way, then I would be most grateful to hear this tale. All right, then. I call this story The Human of the Disco. The year was 1984, and the popularity of my preferred genre dance music had long since made its now-storied plummet down the pop charts. Sure, you'd still have an occasional single release by Shalimar or Odyssey, and I suppose one could argue that the spirit of disco lived on in early hip-hop and the music of artists like Irene Cara and Laura Branigan. But once the orchestral string section started being replaced with synthesizers, it was no longer the art form that had once entranced me. To paraphrase a popular slogan from a few years prior, disco was dead. The disco barn, on the other hand, had never been busier. You see, the fact that something was dead was not a deal-breaker for the majority of our clientele. In fact, quite the opposite. My embrace of contemporary pop culture was a bit of an anomaly amongst my undead brethren. Vampires in particular tend to be uncomfortable participating in activities that are still fashionable with the living. It's considered gauche. A phenomena doesn't really start getting traction with the vampire community until after it's been discarded by the mortal world for at least three or four years. They're a bit like Canada or the Midwest in that regard. By 1984, punk and new wave had metaphorically driven the proverbial stake far enough through Disco's glittering hat that vampires were finally ready to give it a shot. A thermometer might indicate that their foreheads were at room temperature, 
but there was no disguising that the undead population was experiencing an outbreak of disco fever. Vampires sent their familiars to malls in droves to buy t-shirts and buttons, which were hastily edited with markers and bedazzlers to read, Disco is undead. The sales of Polaroid film near graveyards tripled, as consumers unable to use mirrors were eager to see how they looked in their new sequined bell-bottoms and body glitter. And, most notably, from my perspective, they began flocking to the disco barn in record numbers. Since our opening nearly a decade previous, we had established ourselves as the most popular supernatural discotheque in all of rural New England. But even so, we were unprepared for numbers in this volume. Since human attendance had been dwindling over the past four years, I had been putting off some maintenance projects, and the barn was badly in need of some renovations if we were going to accommodate our newfound popularity. I was busy running the barn's day-to-day, or rather, night-to-night operations, and my backup bartender, the Jersey Devil, was not exactly mechanically inclined, so I placed an ad for a handy person in the Piscataqua Bat. The Bat was a local newspaper that served the paranormal community, so I was a bit surprised when a regular human was the only person to respond. Well, perhaps regular isn't entirely accurate. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Disco Barn. My name is Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven. I take it you hear about the ad in the paper? Indeed I am, Mr. Shadowmaven. I trust the position has yet to be filled? Oh, no, I haven't hired anyone on just yet. I'm sorry, is something wrong? No, not at all. I'm just a bit taken aback. I hadn't realized any mortals read the bat. Ah, that... Yes, my subscription was due to a slight misunderstanding, but I found your ad most intriguing. Is it true that, as your maintenance worker, I would have unfettered access to the caverns beneath your discotheque? Sure, but I should warn you, our clientele around here can be a bit peculiar, and lately there's been a bit of hostility between some of our customers and people in your... condition. I take it by... My condition, you mean, living? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but more or less. I think you'll find that, despite having no supernatural abilities, I am far from helpless. In addition to my skills at mechanical repair and engineering, I am well-versed in several forms of hand-to-hand combat. Besides, I'm sure I'll be in no danger so long as your patrons continue to observe your five Fs. Oh, so you've heard about those, have you? Of course. No fighting in the barn, no feeding in the barn, no flapping your gums about the barn, no following anyone leaving the barn, and no Francis in the barn. Uh, That last F pertaining to a disagreeable warlock who was partial to the musical stylings of Bachman-Turner Overdrive? Well, I'll say this for you, Mr. I'd prefer for my identity to remain anonymous, if it's all the same. As you please. I'll say this for you, Mr. Human, you certainly do your homework. Yes. I find that when a subject intrigues me, I can get a bit... obsessive. Nothing wrong with being passionate about something. I'm a pretty big Sox fan myself. And no small part of my afterlife has been dedicated to my enthusiasm for a particular subgenre of dance music. So, 
I suppose I'm well acquainted with obsession. Now, if I were to take you on as my factotum, what would you be expecting by way of compensation? Money is of little interest to me. In exchange for performing any tasks you might require, I only ask that you allow me use of your subterranean property and enough free time each evening to pursue my own private interests. I see. And would these interests happen to be connected to the fact that you're wearing a long flowing cape and have a mask that covers half your face? I'd rather not say. All right. Is that a problem? Oh, no, quite the opposite. From what I gather, it sounds like you're a skilled and thorough individual who's willing to work for free as long as I let you skulk around the catacombs beneath my music hall. The fact that you seem to have an almost pathological aversion to discussing your personal life only sweetens the deal. You're every Mana's ideal employee. Uh, you from around here? I'd rather not say. Oh, I think we're gonna get along just fine. You can start tomorrow. Excellent. Do you mind if I go down to the cave now? Knock yourself out. The human, or Hugh as I took to calling him, proved to be an invaluable asset to have around the barn. He was quiet, kept to himself, and was remarkably competent at every task I assigned him. I soon began to welcome the sight of his cape fluttering in the darkness as he would emerge dramatically from the caves beneath our root cellar. With Hugh's help, I soon completed one of the larger projects I had planned, smoothing out the grooves in the dance floor and installing a railing around it so that it could double as a roller rink. We started hosting a roller disco night every Thursday, and the concept proved popular with our new customers. Hugh was kept busy repairing divots in the floor from where intoxicated patrons, perhaps distracted by the myriad images reflected in the mirrors of the disco ball of seemingly unoccupied roller skates gliding across the rink, would stumble and bash their faces into the ground. Our clientele was a hardy lot, and the bruises from such accidents generally faded within a few minutes, which only served to reinforce the festive atmosphere. In fact, I started having to discourage customers from face-planting intentionally to keep the ring from becoming unnavigable by the night's conclusion. Roller Disco Thursdays proved so popular that I decided it might be worthwhile to move the event to a weekend night and add some live entertainment. The idea was met with a great deal of enthusiasm, but it presented some difficulties of its own. Namely, very few mortal singers were still interested in performing disco music, and with humans no longer making the form of entertainment that both my new clientele and my own dark heart thirsted for, I was forced to look elsewhere to satisfy our cravings. Fortunately, I didn't have to look very long before a solution to this particular problem presented itself. Malicia Raventhurst was the scion of one of the oldest and most powerful vampire families in the greater Boston area. Although still quite young by vampire standards, she had been one of the dominant voices in the opera underworld since the late 1930s. We'd met a few years ago back in 47 at Fenway's first night game, and had been on friendly terms ever since. I heard that Melissa might be interested in transitioning her career in a more pop-friendly direction, so I reached out to her. When she agreed to a position as an artist-in-residence at the barn, I was so delighted that I nearly smiled. There was just one problem. 
one I wasn't quite sure how to address. It came up one night as Hugh and I were tinkering with the fog machine. Here's your problem, Ezekiel. This tube is clogged. It looks like someone mixed a more viscous substance in with the glycerin-based fluid. That figures. A few months ago, Jersey Devil said something about trying to get the crowd zamped up by filling the air with atomized mongoose blood. Hey, Jersey Devil! Told you you were gonna break the fog machine if you kept at it! Forget about it. No, I shan't forget about this. If we need to buy a new fog machine, it's coming out of your pay. No need for that, Ezekiel. A little bit of solvent, and the tube is good as new. Thanks, Hugh. I only wish my problem with Melissa could be fixed so easily. The new singer? I thought you said she was talented. Oh, she is. I was never one for the opera, but she has a voice like blood-flecked honey simmering on a Franklin stove. Well, since I take it from your tone that that's a good thing, what is the issue? The issue is... If Melissa is going to be the headliner for our roller disco night, she's going to have to learn to roller skate. So? I thought all vampires were imbued with a sort of inhumanly supernatural agility and grace. That's generally the case. Some of us more so than others. But when it comes to Melissa, it's as though all of the ability that would normally have gone into her dexterity got channeled into a voice instead. She is a hauntingly beautiful, fiercely intelligent vampire with a once-in-a-generation talent. But when it comes to physical movement, Melissa Raventhurst has all of the nimbleness and fluidity of motion of, well... A newborn water buffalo who's been drinking from a trough filled with Harvey Wallbangers and fire ants? Isn't that what you always said, Ezekiel? Melissa, how long have you been here? Long enough, Shadow Maven. Jersey Devil let me in a few minutes ago. Where's Larry? He usually runs outside to greet me when he hears the car pulling up. I've half a mind to swat that mangy flea bag with a rolled up newspaper for making me carry my own bags. Ah, Lawrence is spending a few months in Europe attending to some family business. Apparently the leader of his ancestral pack passed away quite suddenly and there are allegations that one of the cousins might have intentionally given him some chocolate. It's turned into a bit of a kerfuffle. Oh, Zeke, you poor thing. I know how out of sorts you get when Larry isn't around. No wonder you were lashing out blindly and slandering me to this... tall carafe of soup. Carafe of soup? I think she means it as a compliment. I certainly do. And, Miss Raventhurst, I believe that veracity is still considered a valid defense against charges of slander. Oh, fine, it's true. I suppose by vampiric standards I'm a bit of a klutz. But my lack of grace is hardly the insurmountable issue you're presenting it as. I'll overcome it the same way I always have, through hard work and practice. If I can learn the stage choreography for my operatic performances, I'm fairly sure I can learn to glide around and shoot the goose on roly skates in your discotheque. My family has already arranged for me to receive private instruction from a local skate-shoeing prodigy. My lessons begin tomorrow. Problem solved. Well, far be it from me to discourage someone from overcoming adversity through sheer stubbornness. I've always had a soft spot for that sort of behavior. Only, this teacher of yours, he wouldn't happen to be a Kelpie by the name of Clyde McGregor, would he? Yes, actually. 
Why do you ask? Is he not the skilled skatesman he represented himself as? Oh, Clyde's a fine skater. Gifted, in fact. Just the right blend of grace and brutality. Plus, he can transition a grapevine into a sit-spin in a way that really makes you think. It's just that, well, there have been rumors. And, well, I'm not one for gossip. I wouldn't vouch for his character. Oh, Seek, you're such a mother hen. I may appear to be a ravishing young woman who is barely old enough to partake of a human beer, but my virtue is hardly in need of protection. I am hiring Mr. McGregor to instruct me in the art of rolling skates, not ethics. Although, if a certain masked gentleman were interested in discussing the subject of my depravity, I might be amenable. Okay, Melissa, you've made your point. Just be careful is all. My interest in your well-being is not entirely altruistic. If anything were to happen to you while you're here at the barn, the Raventhurst family might not be too kindly disposed towards yours truly, and the enmity of the Raventhurst is not something I'm keen to obtain. Hmm, I see your point. Papa can be a tad overprotective, and he has never been one for proportionate response. I remember I once returned from a transatlantic flight and mentioned to him that they'd given me an aisle seat instead of a window. The next time I turned on the radio, I heard the Hindenburg was on fire. Your father destroyed an entire blimp just because there was a mix-up about your seating assignment? Of course not. Don't be silly. The Hindenburg had a semi-rigid internal structure. It wasn't a blimp. Papa destroyed a Zeppelin because they mixed up my seating assignment. A Zeppelin. But enough about dirigibles, let's talk about you. I don't believe we've been properly introduced. I am Melicia Raventhurst. I am charmed to make your acquaintance, Miss Raventhurst, but I'm afraid that I am not in a position to reciprocate your introduction. I must insist that my identity remain a secret. Oh, handsome and mysterious. <laughs> and, unless I'm very much mistaken, a human as well. Now I am intrigued. I so rarely have the opportunity to converse with a mortal. My parents always told me not to play with my food. Ha! <laughs> Kidding. That was a bit of vampire humor. I'm a vampire. So I surmised, Miss Raventhurst, and a charming one at that. <sighs> Come, sit down beside me, gaze into my eyes, and regale me with tales of your mortal world. What is a seer's? A tempting offer, but one that, sadly, I must decline for the time being. I must return to my underground cave and attend to certain... duties. Another night, I would be more than happy for us to discuss Sears or any other mall anchor stores you desire. Montgomery Ward, perhaps. But for now, farewell! The smoke bomb seems a bit much. Harsh Ezekiel, I appreciate a flair for the dramatic. It was clear that Melicia had taken a shine to my secretive employee, but not everyone in the area shared her progressive attitude towards the living. In prior years, human revelers had been a common sight at the barn, and were treated with a sort of bemused curiosity by the majority of our clientele. But as the local mortals lost their taste for beat-forward melodic dance music, their presence became more of a rarity, and attitudes began to shift. Familiarity might breed contempt, but unfamiliarity can often lead to something a bit more sinister, 
a certain percentage of our new customers had never attended a social gathering where an unenthralled human was present, and they viewed Hugh as an object of derision, and in some cases, fear. Oh, they still obeyed the five Fs. Traditional vampires are sticklers for the binding rules of hospitality. But tensions were starting to mount. So it was not entirely unexpected when a member of Maine's paranormal constabulary made an unannounced visit. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Disco Barn. Sir, my name is Sergeant Conrad Nightlights of the Piscataqua County Bureau of Extranormal Affairs. I take it you are... Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven? Aye, uh, Mr. Shadow Maven, I'd like to ask you a few questions about an ongoing investigation. May I come in? I suppose. Enter freely and of your own, etc. Thank you, Mr. Shadow Maven. The Bureau appreciates your cooperation. Uh-huh. I hope you'll excuse me if I don't shake your hand, Sergeant Nightlights. And why is that, Mr. Shadow Maven? Do you have some problem with law enforcement officers? Oh, not as such, no. It's just that, well, you're a zombie. And seeing as you folks have a certain aversion to running water, your hands tend to be a bit on the, uh, horrifically unhygienic side. And I'm going to be bartending a bit later, so... A perfectly reasonable precaution. With all this humidity we've been experiencing lately, my fingers have been decomposing more rapidly than usual. I should probably soak them in a brine again. Glad to hear I'm not the only person interested in keeping the undead public safe. Speaking of which, I don't mean to alarm you, but we've received several reports of unusual activity in the area, which I have reason to believe could represent a serious threat to the well-being of your customers. Oh no. Are the Elder Gods rising again? The Cult of Dagon was just here last week, and they assured me that wasn't scheduled to happen again until February at the earliest. I wish it were that simple, Mr. Shadow Maven. No, according to my sources, there is a creature on the loose far more dangerous than any mere Cthulhu. The most deadly animal these woods have ever seen. A moose? No, Mr. Shadow Maven, not a moose. A moose doesn't represent an existential threat to our entire way of life. Well, clearly you've never encountered an angry moose. I'm talking about a human, Shadow Maven. A food-eating, water-drinking, air-breathing human. The kind of creature who would just as soon drive a stake through your heart as look at you. I'll cut to the chase, Mr. Shadow Maven. We've had reports that you've been harboring an unlicensed human on this premises. I wasn't aware that humans required a license. No need to get defensive, Shadow Maven. I never said they did, just that you don't have one. Do you admit that there is a human on this property? There might be. But I fail to see how that's any of your concern, Sergeant. Mr. Shadow Maven, do you know a vampire by the name of Thurl Sanguinius? Sure. Thurl's been a regular here for years. Gets a trifle rowdy when he's got a bloodlust going, but decent enough sort for the most part. He was involved in a bit of a fracas with a bog white last week. We had to cut him off. Haven't seen him since. I expect he's still embarrassed about the whole thing. Is Thurl in some sort of trouble? You could say that, Mr. Shadow Maven. Thurl Sanguinius was found two nights ago. 
He was stabbed through the heart with a wooden cross soaked in garlic oil. It's the third supernatural fatality in these woods in the past two weeks. And eyewitnesses spotted what they believed to be a human leaving the scene. Can I speak to the human in your employ? I don't suppose you're going to leave until you do. It certainly seems unlikely. Oh, fine. Hugh, you'd better get up here. What is it, Ezekiel? Hugh, this is Sergeant Conrad Nightlights of the PCBEA. He's investigating a murder, and he'd like to ask you a few questions. Sergeant Nightlights, I'd be happy to assist you in any way. I am at your disposal. All right, Hugh, if that is your real name. It is not. Where were you two nights ago? I was in the cave beneath this barn, working on a project related to a certain... obsession of mine, the details of which I am not at liberty to divulge. There. That clears that up. I expect you'll be on your way now, Sergeant. Not so fast, Ezekiel. This... human... has no alibi. A mortal matching his description was spotted near the scene of the crime. And he is clearly obsessed with vampires. What? No, I'm not. It is abundantly clear to me that he is somehow involved in the involuntary cardiovascular ventilation of Thurl Sanguinius. This hue of yours is a self-appointed monster hunter. I can assure you, Sergeant, I am nothing of the kind. I haven't killed anyone. I wouldn't. Okay, human. How about you come down to the station and we can talk about it there? Oh, no, you don't, Nightlights. I know how that story plays out. Once he's in custody, our boy just happens to trip and accidentally shoves his brains into your mouth. Sound familiar? Look, Shadow Maven, I don't know who you think you're protecting, but this creature is a menace. And I am the thin, dead line that separates your dance club from a world of human-induced chaos and devastation. You think you're safe in your little utopian disco bubble, where cryptids and vamps and mortals all hold hands and dance and sing kumbaya. But here in the real world, monsters kill humans and humans kill monsters. The sooner you realize that and let me do my job, the safer the supernatural community will be. Sergeant Nightlights, I believe you've worn out your welcome. You have no evidence against you other than your own personal prejudice, and I'm starting to lose my patience. We're more than capable of handling our own security in-house. Oh yes, the famous five Fs that you've been using to maintain your delusion of security and hold reality at bay for the last decade. Well, if you keep allowing unenthralled humans to run wild on your property, you're gonna find yourself with a sixth F on that list. No farmer disco enthusiast vampires who haven't been staked through the heart by crazed humans that they naively thought they could trust. Oh, I don't know, Conrad. It's a little wordy for a mnemonic device. I think we'll probably just stick with the current five Fs, but thank you for the suggestion. Now, are you going to leave peacefully, or do I need to start spraying the hose in front of you? There's no need to resort to threats. I'll go, but I'll be back. And when I am, I hope for your sake that you're still unstaked enough to open this door.
Sergeant Nightlights may not have had enough evidence to arrest Hugh, but his suspicions were more than enough to stir up trouble. Vampire-human relations have always been more than a little bit fraught, and Hugh's distinctive attire and flamboyant approach to discretion did little to relax the already tense atmosphere. The very presence of a human was enough to put some of our more temperamental clients on edge, but once the sergeant began asking leading questions and planting the idea that Hugh might not merely be an object of their scorn, but potentially a threat as well, that tension started nearing dangerous levels. The local creatures weren't yet ready to break out the pitchforks. Well, except those of them that were still working active farms. But they weren't far from forming an angry mob and storming the barn. Nightlights may not have been subtle in his rabble-rousing, but what zombies lacked in nuance, they more than make up for in tenacity. And as autumn approached, the rabble was quite roused indeed. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept the seething cauldron of paranormal tension that was upstate Maine from turning into a full-on bloodbath was Melissa's performances. They were magnificent. She hadn't performed on one of our increasingly popular roller disco nights yet, but her warm-up sets on the weekends were already becoming the stuff of legend. Her rich and warm voice projected through the chill night air, drawing in whatever local creatures were within range like a siren song. Better, in fact. We had had an actual siren perform a few summers back, and I am not exaggerating when I say that Melissa was her vocal superior in every possible way. Plus, with her operatic training, she didn't need to use a microphone and could concentrate all of her attention on the audience. I forbid our patrons and employees alike from using glamours on one another while inside the barn, but even without a vampiric thrall, Melissa had everyone in attendance mesmerized as soon as she opened her mouth. When she sang, all anxiety drained from the room and was replaced with a sense of sheer joy and exuberance. As one, the revelers seemed to exult in a pure celebration of being alive, or some reasonable facsimile thereof. And even better, her skating was progressing quickly enough that we felt we were ready to announce her as headlining our first weekend roller disco night on the last Saturday of the month. I felt certain that if Melissa could spread the sheer hedonistic exaltation that her music inspired to the larger crowds that the spectacle of a roller disco would provide, then those in attendance would be too busy partying to retain their xenophobic rancor. Melissa seemed excited by the prospect but had been acting strangely lately. Even by the high standard for eccentricity set by her being both wealthy and a theater person, I was willing to chalk up her uncharacteristically skittish behavior to nerves about her roller skating debut, but as I would soon learn, there was a great deal more to it than that. Perhaps I oughtn't to have been surprised that Hugh was the person she finally confided in. Well... I suppose the main differences are that a microwave heats food faster and uses less energy, while a toaster oven takes longer, but is capable of heating food with more pleasing textures. And yes, both can be found at Sears. Oh, Hugh, your mortal world is a place of such wonders and fascination. I remember stumbling across a Sears catalog many years ago in the home of a midnight snack. Flipping through the pages, each photograph spoke to me of a fantastical realm filled with 
appliances and slacks, far removed from the everyday drudgery of masked balls and bacchanalian orgies that consume the lives of aristocratic vampires. Many nights did I gaze at the colorful images it contained, but the taxonomy of these home goods were a cipher I could never decrypt. Now, thanks to you, the veil of encryption is lifted and I am given glimpses into a mundanity more wonderful than I could have ever imagined. Your banal words are like a soothing beige balm on my frazzled nerves. I've come to enjoy these talks as well. At times, they are nearly enough to distract me from my own all-consuming obsession. Nearly. But lately I sense that there is more troubling you than a general dearth of knowledge about mid-tier consumer goods. What's wrong? Why, nothing. Nothing at all, you darling mortal. I simply... Oh, it's no use. How can I lie to those fragile, gooey eyes? It's Clyde, Hugh. He's every bit the cad that Ezekiel warned me he might be. Your skate instructor. Has he neglected your tutelage? If you're concerned that you won't be ready in time for your roller disco debut, then perhaps I could rig you some skates with locked wheels. You wouldn't be able to glide on them, but you could walk normally, and I'm sure everyone would be too entranced by your delightful singing to notice the difference. That is a sweet and most inventive offer, Hugh, but no, my rolling skate ability has improved greatly in the past weeks. While my coordination may be below average for my undead brethren, by mortal standards, my dexterity would be comparable to that of an Olympic athlete. I've worked hard, and since Clyde's services were procured through my family's retainer, he wouldn't dare shirk his duties. At least not in any obvious manner. Any Kelpie who crosses the Raven Thirsts would be purchasing a one-way ticket to the waterproof glue factory. Then what's the problem? <sighs> in one of our early lessons, Clyde got a bit uh, forward. I rebuked him, of course. I've never really been much of a horse girl. Initially, I gave the matter little thought, but then I started receiving threatening notes in my dressing room warning me that if I don't abandon my nascent disco career and leave the barn, then I will be in grave peril. There's nothing that could be definitively traced back to Clyde, of course, other than the paper being damp with salt water, but they started showing up right after I spurned his advances. He's clearly obsessed with me. Do you think Clyde would actually follow through on his threats? I doubt it. And if he tried to harm me, I'm more than capable of defending myself. The only time I'm really vulnerable is when I'm skating, and during our lessons he may look at me with unbridled scorn and hatred, but he hasn't been physically aggressive. The problem is that the threats themselves might prove more damaging than the actions they threaten. What do you mean? Well... If my family were to learn about those letters and felt I was in danger, they wouldn't hesitate to extract me from the barn and send me home immediately. I see. And with tensions in the area already at a boiling point, I wouldn't be surprised if the cancellation of your advertised concert were to set the local monster population off into a full-scale riot. The forests of upstate Maine would run red with blood, transforming the region into a wooded abattoir. Do you really think so? I mean, obviously, I hope that doesn't happen, but it's nice to be appreciated. <laughs> Melissa Raventhurst, I have no doubt that if there is anyone capable of turning rural New England into a nightmarish hellscape of unimaginable terror, it is you. Oh, Hugh, bless your squidgy blood-filled heart, you do say the sweetest things. 
I'll have a talk with Clyde tomorrow and see if I can get to the bottom of all this. Please be careful. Kelpies can be very dangerous creatures. If you come at him directly, there's a very good chance that the only thing you'll get to the bottom of is the section of the Penobscot River that he calls home. And I would so hate for anything to happen to your delicate human body. I appreciate your concern, but I have a few tricks up my sleeve. I'll take care of Clyde. You just worry about your performance. Now, if you'll forgive me, I must go. I know, I know. Off to your subterranean lair to pursue your mysterious dark passions. Something like that, yes. I must say, the smoke bomb use has diminishing returns. You arranged to meet with Clyde at the barn just as we were opening for business. I think he wanted some witnesses around in case things got physical betwixt himself and the Kelpie. A decision, and he would soon come to regret. Clyde possessed a number of traits that I would consider shortcomings, but tardiness was not amongst them. He arrived at the appointed hour, and as he made his way to Hugh's table, every eye in the place was on him. In his humanoid form, Clyde McGregor was a striking individual, as Kelpies tend to be. He had the lithe, muscular build of a swimmer, and his chiseled features were well-framed by an artfully tussled mane of blonde hair. The overall effect was so distracting that it took a moment to realize that the streaks of green which tinted his flaxen hair were not manic pixie hair dye, as an initial glance might suggest, but rather strands of algae from the riverbed he called home in his equine form. As he straddled the chair opposite Hugh, Clyde made no attempt to disguise the derision he felt for the human. All right, air breather. You got five minutes. I met this chick at the roller rink in Portland last night, and I'm going to lure her down to the banks of the river, then transform, drown her, and rip her to shreds. So make it quick. How charming. Hey, it's what I do. Well, Latin skate like Dorothy Hamill's wet dream. Emphasis on wet. Would you look down on a bird for flying, or a salmon for swimming, or a werewolf for tearing a young family limb from limb and feasting on their steaming entrails? Possibly that last one. Whatever, Square. I'm surprised a fang chaser like you is so judgmental. Fang chaser? What's that supposed to mean? Well, it's pretty clear you got some kind of a weird thing for vampires. Why does everyone keep saying that? Besides... You and that raven thirst chick, you have a thing going on, right? Is that what this is about? You want to thank me for kicking her to the curb so you can have that little blood muffin all to yourself? Well, bon appetit, freak. You're welcome. Whatever sort of relationship may or may not exist between Miss Raventhirst and myself is none of your concern. In fact, nothing about Melissa concerns you anymore. Now that her lessons have concluded, I want you to leave her alone. Or what, human? You're gonna chip my hoof as a trample you? You underestimate me, McGregor, and you do so at your own peril. I might be mortal, but I am far from defenseless. Once I set my mind on a goal, I pursue it with a single-minded determination that borders on mania. And if your threatening letters continue, then rest assured, avenging your slights against Miss Raventhirst will become my goal. Do I make myself clear? 
<laughs> oh man, that was awesome. How long did you practice that little speech? I'm not gonna lie, you actually had me a little nervous for a second there. Just a couple problems though. One, if you so much as lay one human finger on me, you'll be in violation of the five F's, and the barn's rules of protection won't apply to you anymore. How long you think it'd take before all these vampires watching this little chat start passing you around like a Capri Sun? I might take my chances. I reckon you might at that. But here's the other thing. I ain't the one sending those letters. You're not? No way, man. Sure, I was plenty steamed when that stuck-up vamp turned me down. I mean, who does she think she is, rejecting a stallion like me? But I'm not exactly the literary type. Besides, there are plenty of other fillers in the sea, and I should know. A lot of them drifted there from my riverbed after I dragged them down there and ripped them to shreds. Then who has been sending Malicia these threats? Oh, I reckon I could tell you that. If I felt like it. See, the day after her first lesson, somebody came poking around and asking about her schedule. Gave me a few sugar cubes and an apple for letting him know when she was going to be out of her room. I was pissed off enough I probably would have told him even without the bribe. Who was it? Sorry, thing chaser. Time's up. I'm out of here. No! Who was it? If you don't tell me, I'll... I'll... So what? Before Hugh could respond, the sound of a gunshot reverberated throughout the barn like, well, like a gunshot. Blood welled from the small hole that suddenly appeared in the center of Clyde's forehead as he collapsed to the ground. It was impossible to tell where the shot had come from, but that certainly didn't stop the crowd from forming their own conclusions. It's that human! He killed Clyde! No, I didn't! I don't even have a gun! I- Somebody stop that human before he kills again! He'll grind us with his flat teeth! I also think that humans are bad. Hugh was quick to recognize that the small crowd that was gathering around the scene was of the exsanguinate first, ask questions never variety. With a flourish of his long cape, he dropped one of his smoke bombs and disappeared down a trap door in the dance floor that led to the catacombs beneath the barn. While removing himself from a crowd of angry vampires might have seemed like a prudent measure, his flight from the scene of a murder did little to convince those present of his innocence. When Sergeant Nightlights arrived a few short minutes later and began his investigation of the crime, the evidence continued to mount against Hugh. Melissa rushed from a dressing room to defend the reputation of the mortal she had grown so fond of. I'm telling you, officer, there's no way that Hugh could be guilty. He doesn't have a violent bone in his squishy, vulnerable body. It's Sergeant, ma'am. And if this blood sack is so harmless, then perhaps you can explain why I found this revolver under the table where he and the late Mr. McGregor were having their little talk. The human clearly got spooked and dropped his weapon before fleeing the scene of the crime. I'll take this gun down to ballistics and run some tests, but if it's the murder weapon, I'm issuing an arrest warrant for the human. Sergeant, you don't understand. No? Well, how about you explain it to me? Not his fault? 
troubled childhood, got confused and thought that bullets were underpants and Mr. McGregor was a chest of drawers? Humans have more excuses and I have holes in my rapidly decomposing suit jacket. You want to think he's innocent? Fine. I want to be stumbling through the woods chasing clumsy teenagers and feasting on their brains. But a paranormal creature is dead and I'm on the clock. So what we want is going to have to take a backseat to facts. And the fact is, your Hugh is a murderer. End of story. But he was only trying to protect me. Melissa told Sergeant Nightlights all about the threatening letters that she'd been receiving, but that information only seemed to confirm Hugh's motive. The best the sergeant could offer was that if Melissa could prove that Clyde was the one threatening her, he would get the charges against Hugh reduced from murder to second-degree man-like creature slaughter. But seeing as the penalty for either crime was having your brains eaten, this prospect brought Melissa little solace. The proposed plea bargain ended up being a moot point anyway, because shortly after the ballistics report came back proving that the revolver was indeed the murder weapon, Melissa received another threatening letter urging her to leave the barn. Unlike the previous missives, this one was signed. Beneath a lengthy paragraph detailing exactly the tortures she would suffer if she did not abandon her pop career, were printed the six words, Sincerely, the human of the disco. Sergeant Nightlights did his best to disguise the satisfaction he took in issuing a warrant for Hugh's arrest. The fact that his lips and cheeks had long since rotted off gave him a certain amount of plausible deniability, but when he delivered the news, the sergeant certainly appeared to be grinning from ear to ear. It was obvious to both Melissa and myself that Hugh was being framed, but there was very little that could be done about it. Sergeant Nightlights hastily assembled a violent mob of the most anti-human monsters he could find and led them into the labyrinth-like catacombs to search for Hugh. This proved to be a fruitless endeavor. In his time working in the barn, Hugh had learned more about the layout of those caves than any person alive, dead, or some combination of the two. He had no problem eluding his pursuers and sealing himself in the large cavern where he had been working on one of his projects. I was concerned that Melissa might want to back out of her upcoming roller disco debut. I would have understood if she wasn't up to it, but now more than ever, I was convinced that the promise of her performance was the only thing keeping the already agitated supernatural populace from erupting into violence and massacring our human neighbors. As it turns out, my worries in regards to Melissa's resolve were entirely unfounded. Ezekiel, how dare you even think such a thing? I wouldn't dream of backing out now. If I were to do so, then Hugh's sacrifice would have been in vain. Besides, I'd hate to think of all those humans that would die needlessly if my fans started a riot. I'm not opposed to an occasional snack, but once you start a mass slaughter, sustainability goes right out the window and then where are you? No, I'll perform all right. I've worked too hard not to. Besides, I wouldn't give that dreadful Sergeant Nightlight's the satisfaction. He's been all but insisting that I return to Boston, quote, for my own safety. Has he now? Yes, he even threatened to contact my family and inform them of the letters. 
I told him I'd already told Papa about them, and he was in full support of my decision to remain. I also implied that if I were to withdraw from my position as artist-in-residence, the Raventhurst family lawyers would descend on the PCBEA as a whole, and him specifically like the were-jackals they are, and sue him within an inch of his afterlife for the damage suffered to the Raventhurst name from being forced to breach a contract. Goodness me. You really tell your father all about this? Of course not. Papa would have me back home in an instant if he thought anything was amiss and probably give Sergeant Nightlights a medal for ratting on me. But the sergeant doesn't know that. He ate my story up like it was the brains of a calculus teacher. <laughs> I must say, you seem in much better spirits than the last time we spoke. I, uh, don't suppose you've had a visit from a certain fugitive lately. Why, Ezekiel, I... I don't know what you're trying to imply, but I certainly wouldn't... I mean, I, I haven't... It's all right, Melissa. How's Hugh holding up? <sighs> all right, I suppose, all things considered. How did you know he'd been here? You always look a bit more excited after spending some time in his company. And this evening, your eyes are sparkling like rubies for the first time in days. Also, there's some crumbs on the Sears catalog that's open on your coffee table, and last I checked, you didn't eat human food. You always were too clever by half, Ezekiel. I don't suppose you've applied those keen detective skills to figuring out just who is behind our current predicament, have you? You know, I actually think I might have pieced something together just now. But I'm not sure yet. Next time you see our mortal friend, let him know that I'd like a word with him. I'm going to need both of your help to confirm my suspicions. Of course. Is there anything else you need? I don't suppose you've got any more of these catalogs lying around. Oh, scads of them. I make it a point to hijack one postal worker every holiday season and take their entire cachet. It's become a bit of a tradition. I've got two suitcases full of them with me. Catalogs, that is, not postal workers. They're in the steamer trunk. Sorry, you know I can't resist a bit of vampire humor. We're vampires. We're going to need as many of those catalogs as you can scrounge together. And tell Hugh to bring some aluminum foil and as much rubber tubing as he can find. I got something special in mind for your roller disco debut. Rubber tubing and tin foil? Now I am intrigued. Reminds me of that weekend in Oberstdorf at the Kaiser's summer home. Malicia, let's try to stay on topic. Right, sorry. The next few days passed quickly as we had a lot to accomplish in a short amount of time. Hugh was relieved that I believed in his innocence, and once I shared my suspicions with him, he worked relentlessly throughout the day to see that we were prepared in time for the big night. In addition to the extra preparations my plan necessitated... There were still the regular duties associated with the running of a popular nightclub. Between me attending those responsibilities and Melissa having to practice a skate routine, much of the extra work associated with my plan fell to Hugh. If I had any concerns about the young mortal tiring himself out, they were soon put to rest. Despite the long hours he was putting in, I had never seen the eccentric mortal look happier. He toiled away with the self-assured determination of a man who was living out his dream and from the sidelong glances I saw him exchanging with Melissa, I could tell that to whatever dark passion had drawn him to the barn in the first place, 
he had now added another one. Against all odds, by the time the last Saturday of October arrived, everything was ready, if only just. A line of assorted ghouls and cryptids started to form at the door by the early afternoon, and soon as the sun set, the vampires added their numbers to the throng. About fifteen minutes before we opened for business, I recognized a familiar figure shambling his way to the front of the line. I opened the door to greet him. Well, hello there, Sergeant, and welcome to the disco barn. Miss Raventhurst suggested I might come by a bit early and go over the show's security with her. Of course. Consider yourself invited. Sergeant Nightlights, thank you so much for coming. Miss Raventhurst, I still say you'd be better off canceling the show, but if you're going to go through with it, I appreciate you at least going over the details with me. It's the smart move. Now what about these additional security precautions you told me about? Are they all in place? Oh, yes. And I do so hope that they meet with your approval. As I mentioned to you on the phone, when my family heard that there'd been threats made against me, they insisted on sending their top bodyguard. Allow me to present... Well, his name has been lost to the sands of time, you know how it is, but we call him Ami. Tell them why, Ami. Um... All he can say. Because of the bandages, don't you know? But before he got all mummied up and got his bits and pieces taken out and stuffed into canopic jars, Ami used to be a real bigwig magician or priest or something in ancient Egypt. He ate several pharaohs. Or at least I think he did. Tough to say for sure, though. Bandages and all. Um... Also, I think his tongue might be in one of those canopic jars I mentioned. But what we do know is that Ami is an invincible killing machine with the strength of 30 warriors, aren't you, Ami? Um... Oh, Ami, do that thing where you pick up a boulder and crush it down to nothingness with your superhuman might. Sergeant, you're just going to love this. Um... Isn't he just marvelous? Your mummy friend is most impressive, ma'am. And he will be by my side every second until the concert starts. What about once the show begins? Ami will be patrolling the inner circle of the roller ring, keeping an eye out for anyone suspicious. And then the choreography of my routine is such that either he or Ezekiel will be within a few feet of me until the end of the show. And what happens at the end of the show, ma'am? Well, after I sing my final note, I go into a straddle spin in the very center of the roller ring, directly beneath that giant disco ball hanging from the rafters. I hold my spin for 45 seconds while Ezekiel runs a light display. It's the only time I won't be within reach of he or Ami, but it's for less than a minute and no one could possibly approach me unnoticed while I'm in the middle of the rink with all the lights pointed at myself. Well, ma'am, it certainly seems as though you've been thorough. But be careful out there. Something tells me we haven't seen the last of the human menace that's been plaguing this discotheque. Um... Yes, Ami, I'm sure that with you and the sergeant here, I'll be perfectly safe from that nasty old human. Let's hope so, Miss Raventhurst. Thank you for your cooperation. I'm going to do a perimeter sweep of the area. A few minutes later, I opened up the doors for business. On a normal evening, even a busy one, I request that our patrons shut the door behind them so that things can stay a bit cozier inside. But tonight, I didn't bother. 
In fact, after a few minutes of watching the line bottleneck at the entrance, I ended up opening up the wide double doors in the side of the building that I had once used to get the thresher into the barn back when I harvested alfalfa instead of a more viscous crop. I was soon glad that I had decided to open things up the way that I had. The dance floor slash roller rink filled up quickly, and with the doors flung wide, the spillover crowd was able to gather on the field outside the barn and still see the center of the rink where the show was going to take place. If it were not for that impromptu outdoor seating, I'm not sure we would have been able to keep the customers from pressing into the space Melissa needed to perform. We had thought that the limited availability of skate rentals would limit the number of monsters on the rink, but we had underestimated the ingenuity and determination of Melissa's fans. I saw more than one pair of handmade skates that had been hastily cobbled together from bones and ectoplasm, and several vampires had affixed circular pieces of cardboard to the bottom of their shoes and were levitating slightly to create the illusion of skating. I cast myself for not having considered that as an alternative to Melissa's ill-fated skate lessons, but it was too late for that now. The show was about to start. After a few demonstrations of Ami's prodigious boulder-crushing abilities, we were able to clear enough space in the middle of the room for Melissa to skate in. I flicked the lights a few times to let the crowd know things were about to get underway, and was gratified at the immediate hush that fell over them. Melissa entered the spotlight crouched low to the ground with one foot in the air, in a traditional roller skate maneuver known as shooting the duck. Any concerns I had once held about her skating prowess were immediately dispelled. She was extraordinary. Vampires have a tendency to rely on the preternatural skills and magical abilities we gain when we're turned, and I was no exception. I'm embarrassed to say that I had forgotten that hard work and practice could create their own sort of magic that could, in its own way, be even more powerful than its supernatural counterpart. Melissa's skating reminded me of that, and then she started singing. I cannot begin to convey the eerily haunting and unearthly beauty of Melissa's voice. Hearing the layers and depth of emotion that it projected into the still night air is an experience that I will remember for the rest of my eternal life. Suffice it to say, it was, and I do not use these words lightly, pretty good. She chose a set list wisely, alternating between up-tempo funk-influenced numbers and more saturated orchestral soul songs, expertly tugging on the crowd's expectations and emotions like she was operating a complicated marionette. By the time she got into a closing number, a soaring, updated cover of the classic hit Oogie Oogie Badger, there wasn't a person in the audience who wouldn't have killed for her. Which was exactly what our mysterious adversary was counting on. As the song reached its conclusion, Melissa skated to the center of the rink and held the final note as she started to go into a straddle spin. With great effort, I pried my eyes away from Melissa's graceful twirling and forced them upwards to where I knew the real action was about to take place. Sure enough, in the rafters above Melissa, I spotted the telltale fluttering of a familiar-looking cape. Simultaneously, there came an urgent cry from the dance floor. Ezekiel! Now! At that point, things started happening very quickly. I signaled the Jersey Devil to hit the switch Hugh had installed behind the bar and turned the spotlight up to the caped figure in the rafters. The crowd gasped in horror when they saw that someone was hacking away at the rope that held the heavy disco ball aloft. 
but it was too late to stop him from completing the evil deed. The enormous mirrored ball plummeted to the ground below, obliterating itself as it crushed the spinning figure beneath it. A shocked silence filled the air. But it didn't last long. It's the human! The saboteur in the rafters flapped his cape dramatically, seemingly welcoming the crowd's attention. Then he dashed off towards the hatch in the ceiling to make his escape. Or at least he tried to. When the killer got to the first crossbeam, it was as though he hit an invisible brick wall. Look, something's happening to that human that killed Melissa. The human did nothing of the kind. <gasps> A talking mummy? Now I've seen it all. Ezekiel, some scissors if you please. Sure. So, you, uh, just put the bandages on right over the cape and mask, huh? I was here on the dance floor the whole time, which means I couldn't have been the killer. Then who was the killer? Yeah, we want to know. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, who was the killer? Jersey Devil, would you mind turning off that switch and flying up to retrieve our masked killer? Forget about it. So who is he? Yeah, as previously established, we would like to know. Ezekiel, would you be so good as to remove Sergeant Nightlight's mask? <gasps> All right, fine. You caught me. Ever since this barn opened, incidents of human-on-creature violence have been at record lows, and the Bureau's funding has been cut every year. I figured that if I could get folks around here to remember how vicious and deadly humans can be, then maybe my department could start getting the funding it needed to keep these woods safe from those meat sacks. I thought staking Thurl Sanguinius and the others and blaming it on the humans would be enough, but as long as the community was being placated by the soporific sounds of disco beats, they were too distracted to rise up against the mortal menace, so I had to shut down the barn. You figured that if Melissa were forced to leave, then the populace would turn against the barn, and you'd have a free hand to drum up your anti-human hysteria. Maybe I did. So what? You think you've accomplished something here tonight, Shadow Maven? You haven't done jack squat. Once word gets out that Melissa was killed here, there's no way the Raven Thirst will allow this place to continue to operate. And without the barn forcing its tolerance propaganda down their throats, monsters and humans will return to their previous levels of hostility. Sure, you can split my head open, but my afterlife is a small price to pay for restoring the supernatural order. With Melissa dead, there's no way you can maintain the disgusting amity with the humans that has been plaguing these woods. Oh, I wouldn't be so sure about that, Sergeant. Being dead has never slowed me down before. <gasps> but, but how? I'm so glad you asked. You see, we knew that Hugh hadn't sent me those dreadful letters, and when they kept arriving after Clyde was dead, we knew they weren't coming from him. When you kept advocating for me to return to Boston, Zeke here became suspicious. When Melissa had first received those threatening letters, she had assumed that the salt water that they were soaked with came from Clyde's home in the Penobscot. But when I analyzed them in the lab I set up in the cave, 
I found that the water had a saline content far higher than brackish river water. There was nearly a tablespoon of salt for every cup of water, a ratio that would be far more in line with a brining solution. Like the brine you had said you used to prevent your hands from rotting on the night we first met, Sergeant Nightlights. Once we knew it was you who was behind our troubles, it was a simple matter to subtly steer your point of attack in a direction that suited our needs. With Hugh here mummying it up as our ersatz bodyguard, I knew you wouldn't try anything on the dance floor. But how did you crush those boulders? No human has that kind of strength. At least not without magical augmentation. Is he some kind of a warlock? Why, you silly asshole. Hugh here is still as delightfully weak and vulnerable as ever. The only magic he employed was the magic of papier-mâché. Those boulders I crushed were made from flour, water, and Malicia's old Sears catalogs. Since Ummy's presence ruled out a ground attack, I directed your attention to the disco ball and made a point of telling you exactly when and for how long I would be standing directly under it. In addition to getting you exactly where we wanted you, dropping that tidbit of information ensured that you wouldn't try anything until the very end of the show. I would have been so disappointed if my performance were cut short by you springing our little trap too soon. Knowing where you would have to stand in the rafters to reach the disco ball, I was able to set up rubber tubing that ran along the beams around that area. The tubes were connected to the sink behind the bar, and when the Jersey Devil flipped a switch, a valve was opened which sent water circulating through those tubes. Running water, which you as a zombie are incapable of crossing. Isn't he clever? Once we knew that you were in position and saw you hacking away at that rope... Ezekiel turned the spotlight on you to turn the audience's attention away from me. No easy feat. That gave me the opportunity to slip through the trap door in the center of the rink that you had installed. It leads directly to his favorite cave. It's really quite impressive what you've done with the place, dear. That was quite a risk you took, Raventhurst. If your timing was off by even a fraction of a second, you would have been crushed by that disco ball. Oh, Melissa was never in any real danger. You see, that disco ball was made of paper mache and aluminum foil. But what about her corpse over there? More paper mache! Melissa switched it out through the trap door. Actually, darling, the papier mache version of me you made, while charming, was not entirely convincing, so I just used an old corpse that Ezekiel had lying around. That's a little unsettling. Sorry, dear, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to my performances. What's the matter, sicko? I figured a twisted mortal like you who's obsessed with vampires would be turned on by the sight of a little blood and gore. Why does everyone keep thinking I have some kind of vampire fetish? Seriously, Hugh? What? I mean, yes, I'll admit there is a certain attraction between Melissa and I, but that has nothing to do with the fact that she's undead. Really? I I mean, that's sweet, but I kind of thought... Come on, freak show. If you're not a fang chaser, then why are you dressed like that? Wait, you think this outfit has something to do with vampires? At first, I thought you were going for a Phantom of the Opera sort of thing. You know, with the cape and the mask and your interest in the catacombs under the concert venue. But you do have that picture just above your tummy. Yes, I hate to side with the sergeant here, but... If that dark obsession you're always talking about isn't with vampires, then what are you obsessed with? 
Seriously. Batman. I'm obsessed with Batman, obviously. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. Is Batman some new human slang for vampire? Because it, it sounds a bit offensive. No, Batman is not a slur. Batman is the single most popular comic book character in the world. He's the world's greatest detective. You know, Batman? This outfit is an authentic Batman costume worn by Adam West in the 1960s TV show. I've spent the past months transforming the cave beneath this barn into an exact replica of the Batcave, complete with a working crime computer, which I used to analyze the salt content in those letters the sergeant sent. The reason I haven't told anyone my name is that I had it legally changed to Bruce Wayne. You really haven't heard of Batman? I'm sorry, I really don't read the funny pages. Oh, except Garfield. I do rather enjoy that. I don't suppose this Batman of yours is uh, partial to lasagna, is he? No, Batman is not... Ugh. Look, th the point is, I'm not obsessed with vampires or the Phantom of the Opera. I'm obsessed with Batman. Well, good for you. Everybody should have a hobby. I thought he was just a pervert. Honestly? Me too. Frankly, I'm a tad disappointed. Oh, well, nobody's perfect. I suppose the upside is that if you're going to dress up like your cartoon man, I'll be a bit less self-conscious about wearing my cat-inspired burglary suit around the house. Wait. Really? Yes, there's something about it that's just so... freeing. You weirdos disgust me. I'm going back to the station. And why on earth would you think we'd let you go anywhere after all the trouble you've caused us? Because of this. <gasps> That's right, Shadow Maven. It's the gun I used to kill Clyde. I checked it out of the evidence locker before I came down here tonight. It might not do much to you with a Raventhirst dame, but if anybody tries to stop me from leaving, I'll fill this meat bag with more lead than a Roman aqueduct. Now clear a path. That's right. Step aside, folks. Nothing to see here. I've never seen anyone shamble so quickly. Should we try to stop him? Oh, I wouldn't bother. We can always find him down at the station tomorrow and report him to his superiors. If he makes it home tonight, that is. But, frankly, I'll be a bit surprised if he does. Oh? And why is that? There's been a very dangerous creature spotted in these woods lately. Is that a moose? Uh. Oh, good lord. Not the antlers. I did try to warn him. After the moose cracked Sergeant Nightlight's skull open and spilled its meager contents onto the forest floor, the party picked back up a bit. At some point during the revelry, Hugh, or Bruce as I suppose I should call him, and Melissa snuck down to the cave and did a bit of celebrating of their own. Last I heard, they were still together, and attended the conventions that were related to Hugh, Bruce's initial obsession whenever Melissa's touring schedule permitted. As for the barn, its newfound popularity proved short-lived. Vampire audiences can be as fickle as their human equivalents, and after a few years their interest turned to scar, 
and I was forced to shut the barn's doors on a semi-permanent basis, excepting, of course, for the occasional rentals I mentioned to you earlier. At first I was concerned about Sergeant Conrad Nightlight's predictions regarding the attitudes of the supernatural community reverting to their previous levels of hostility towards humans, but so far at least, that seems not to be the case. I like to think that those that attended the barn in its heyday learned the lesson that whether we drink blood, ichor, or martinis, the important thing is, we all like to party. But perhaps that's too cunning a moral. Perhaps we're all just too busy pursuing our own dark obsessions to bother with all the hassle of a human-monster blood feud. I know I am. A most enthralling tale, Ezekiel, and one that I am glad to know. It has given me much to consider. I am curious about one thing, though. Oh? Why did Sergeant Nightlight think that dropping the disco ball on Malicia would kill her? Beg pardon? Unless my research has misled me, I was under the impression that being crushed even by a great weight was the sort of injury that a vampire would recover from with relative ease. If so, why would the sergeant hinge his plan on dropping a heavy object on her? Huh. Well, it was a long time ago. Who can remember? Zombies aren't known for being the brightest creatures. Did he suspect that the disco ball had been filled with garlic? Or perhaps that the impact when it hit the ground might dislodge a floorboard that might pierce her heart? Let's go with that one, the floorboard thing. Ah, I suspected as much. Now, since we're asking questions about each other's stories, I have one about the yarn you spun when you first showed up. You said that before he shuffled off his immortal coil and headed to that eternal hacky sack circle down below, Zippy Von Dreadmist turned you into a vampire. Ah. Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven, I respect you too much to continue this charade. Zippy Von Dreadmist was a friend, and in many ways a mentor, but no, he did not turn me although he did attempt on several occasions. I'm guessing those attempts came after he had turned himself into a mist and hidden in a bong for a spell. Indeed they did, but sadly, I was immune to the transformative powers of Zippy's bite. You see, I am not the vampire I represented myself as. I am a gelatinous cube. I suspected that might be the case. You did? What gave me away? Dave, your ten-foot cube made a transparent gelatinous ooze. A tuxedo and a cape are only going to get you so far. Ah. Zippy and I had hoped to one day discover a way to turn a creature like me into a vampire. But with his untimely immolation, I feared that my dreams of becoming a vampire died with him. But then, when I discovered that chat room and heard tales of your ingenuity, I was sure that if anyone knew how to turn a gelatinous cube, it was you. I apologize for the deception, Ezekiel, but I thought you might be more willing to share your secrets if you believed you were confiding in a fellow vampire. I'm sorry, Dave. I'd help if I could, 
but a vampire turns a creature into a vampire by drinking some of their blood and then feeding our blood to them. Seeing as a gelatinous cube doesn't have any blood to begin with, I'm afraid I don't see any way that a vampire could turn you into one of us. Ah, oh, then it is as I feared. My dream is no more. I shall never be a vampire. Oh, I didn't say that. Yes, you literally just did. No, I just said that a vampire couldn't turn you into a vampire. You've already turned yourself into one. What? It wasn't just your cape that reminded me of Hugh. I was struck by another similarity. You became a vampire the same way Hugh became his hero. Through hard work, extensive research, passion, and dedication. But Ezekiel, Hugh isn't really Batman. No. He wears a mask and cape. His name is Bruce Wayne. He used a supercomputer he built in a cave to bring a dangerous killer to justice. And he has a femme fatale love interest who likes to dress like a cat. Perhaps I'm not overly familiar with the source material, but that certainly sounds like the Batman to me. Batman, Ezekiel. It's Batman. He's really quite famous. And even if I accept that Hugh was able to turn himself into Batman, I failed to see how the same logic applies to me. I am not a vampire. Aren't you? You've dedicated your life and all of your resources to studying our habits and emulating our ways. You're a deadly, terrifying creature of the night who wears the hopelessly out-of-date fashion of a bygone era, only travels at night, and unless I miss my guess, you refuse to enter a dwelling unless you've been invited. Well, that's just good manners. Fair, but I'm not finished. Can you see your reflection in a mirror? No. As you so astutely noticed, my body is composed of a translucent gelatin. Uh-huh. And let's say you were to encounter a hostile creature. At the conclusion of that encounter, would they still have the same amount of blood that they had at the start of it? Well, no, but I also would have absorbed their skin, bones, and organs. Well, now you're just splitting hairs. Face it, Dave. You're a vampire. I... I suppose perhaps I am. I am? Oh, thank you, Ezekiel. You are every bit as wise as Bloodfan420 said you would be. Oh, praise from Caesar. Ezekiel, you have already done more for me than I could ever dare to hope for. But is it possible you could grant me one small further indulgence? Had telling, not knowing. What sort of thing did you have in mind? Would you mind repeating what you said when I stated that in addition to absorbing their blood, I also consumed the rest of my victim's body? Any particular reason? I'd like to try something out. All right, then. I believe I said, uh, now you're just splitting hairs. No, the hair is absorbed into my gelatin as well. Ha, ha, ha! That is a bit of vampire humor. I'm a vampire. Heh, <laughs> you sure are. Now, as exciting as all this has been, it's starting to get a bit early for me. Would you like me to make up the spare room for you? I would be most grateful, if it wouldn't be too much of an imposition, that is.
Oh, of course not. After all, there's always room for Jello. This episode of Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn was written, directed, produced, edited, and whatever else you do to a podcast by me, Nathaniel Hubbard. It starred Marissa Bond as Melissa Raventhurst, Dan Mulcairin as The Human, Corey Whitney as The Jersey Devil, and of course, Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven as himself. I did the rest of the voices, but if anybody wants to take credit for Clyde, you're welcome to it. The opening theme is Werewolf in a Water Park by the Buttery Lords, with additional music by Soundroll, Richard Bodgers, and Mood Maze, through a creative licensing agreement with Upbeats. Special thanks to Megan Bob for test reading the script and being incredibly supportive and helpful. If you would like more information on the Haunted Disco Barn, consult your local library. They won't know anything about it, but then you'll be at the library. That's a nice place. Happy Halloween! As the full moon rose over the peak of Splash Mountain, terror spread from the plume to the ornamental fountain. One hundred customers had felt the dark wolf's bite. Why is that water park even fucking open at night? It's a werewolf in a water park. A hairy situation. He's eating all the customers. The clogging the filtration system. You shot a silver bullet, but it missed him.